times, okay, I was researching some things. I like to research, read books, study, do different things that uh, just make me aware of what's going on in our world, what makes me aware of what's going on in our culture, and even inside of myself. And so I came across this article by the Barna Research Group that I thought was fascinating. And I want you just to answer this question uh, to yourself, and then I'll give you the answers they came to the conclusion of, okay? The question is this, what is the top three things a person of no faith is looking for in a conversation with a Jesus follower? What are the top three things a person of no faith is looking for? Think to yourself, what would you say? What, how would you interact with that question? Where would maybe talk to your mind go inside of that answer? Well, this is what they found out when they talked to people who have no faith background or maybe would say, I don't believe in anything. The first one was this, listens without judgments. It's interesting. The second one is this, is honest with their doubts. And the third one is this, does not force a conclusion. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's fascinating. Because here's the reality, at least for myself and how I work, some of my human nature, I have tendencies to listen, to find a way in, to share with them what I want them to know, right? I tend to not be real because maybe that will expose too much or maybe they won't trust me anymore if they really knew what I was thinking. And then the reality is this, sometimes I just like to get the deal done, right? Sometimes when you believe something so much and you're so passionate about it, like Penn State being better than Ohio State, I just want <laughs> the deal to be done, right? I just want to check mark that things happens. I think the questions that came to mind is this. They talk about interacting with someone who maybe is wrestling with their faith or has no faith or, or maybe is processing what their faith is. These questions came to mind for me. Am I listening and asking good questions? And yes, there is a difference between good and bad questions, right? Am I listening and asking good questions Am I being real with my own questions and doubts? Am I allowing myself to be real with someone across the table or be real with my own self to process the things that are going on? And then lastly is this, am I more into the relationship than the results? Am I more into the relationship than the results? Because here's the reality. There is a mission behind being on mission, there is a mission behind being on mission. We see that in Matthew 22. It's also in Mark 12. This is what Jesus says as he is replying to someone asking him, what is the greatest commandment? Basically, what do I need to follow to make sure everything I got is in order? All the check boxes are there. What do I need to do? And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's what we're going to talk about today. That an everyday disciple has to be committed to the presence and posture in missional living. Not just the content, which we'll talk about. An everyday disciple has to be committed to a presence and a posture of missionally living, not just the contents of missionally living. We're in a series called 
everyday disciple. We're spending seven weeks just talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be with Jesus in the everyday? And our aim is this, not to answer every question per se or to give you a checklist of things to do, but rather to invite you into a journey of what it looks like to follow Jesus what it looks like to come alongside of Jesus and learn from him and grow in him and invite others to do that. And over the last five weeks or so, we've been talking through just some very practical things that we can put in place, rhythms that we can put in place to be with Jesus. This is not the solve-all. It's not going to make things any easier sometimes. It's not going to give you all the answers, but rather it's going to position you to trust in and rely on Jesus more and more as you follow him and are with him. Today, we're going to look at this, and I didn't get real fancy with this one, but an everyday disciple is missional to every day, okay? You're like, well, duh, that's what we're talking about, right? But I say that because growing up as someone who was a pastor's kid and a church kid, okay, missional living oftentimes was reserved for the mission trip, or the events, or the time that we went and did this thing that was really a service project, whatever it may be. I really think the idea of missional living takes full effect, powerful effect, living on mission when it is done every single day. And that's why we're going to lean into what does it mean to have a presence and a posture around everyday missional living, what does that mean to live inside of that? What does it look like to actually do that and be a disciple in that? Rich Velotas, he writes a church or a, a book called uh, The Formational Life. And this is what he says in a part of that book. There's never a moment when God isn't moving toward the world in love. There's never a moment where God isn't moving toward the world in love. Now sit on that for a second. Right? Sit on that for a second. Because if that is true, there's a lot of weight that comes with that. But have you ever just thought of that? Right? Maybe you're here and you're exploring Jesus. Or maybe the Jesus conversation is a newer thing for you. And maybe this statement is something that you're like, I've never seen that. Or I don't know how to interact with that. Or maybe you're here and you've been a part of church for a while. You've followed Jesus for a while. You said yes to Jesus a long time ago. And maybe still this quote hasn't necessarily hit, or maybe it comes in spurts and in seasons. What I love about Matthew 22 is I think the reality of Matthew 22, tagged with what this quote is saying, has a powerful understanding behind it. That if what Matthew 22 tells me that our our goal, our mission in life is to love God and love others, I have to know what Rich is saying inside of this quote. That it actually starts with the reality that God is making his way towards us endlessly and constantly, and his love is always pursuing those inside of the world that he created. Because to live out Matthew 22... I have to live into the reality that his love has interacted with my life. That without understanding God's initiating love, we can't understand how to live missionally or live with purpose in the everyday. It's not on the screen, but I would write this down. Loving God, coming from that Matthew 22 passage, 
is a response. It's not a report card. Loving God is a response. It's not a report card. I, I, this is, I struggle with this endlessly. I believe that I have lived such a, uh, a life that, you know, I've been given a lot. I have a lot of uh, people have been generous towards us. God has been generous towards us. And sometimes I live into that thinking that I have to score or check off enough boxes to please God. That loving God becomes this report card of sorts. And it doesn't drive me into loving him more. It actually drives me into working for him more. John 3.16 tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does that tell us? That the God of the universe loved us so much that no matter what your report card says, he sent his son for you. No matter what your life has added up to, no matter if you're on the honor roll or it's sketchy, right? That he has sent his son for you. Why? To do for you what you could not do for yourself. Sin is trying to meet my own needs in and of myself. And as I try to meet my own needs, the further I go with that, the more hopeless it becomes because the more I realize I cannot meet them. And that's when God intersected into our world and sent Jesus who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully human. He is God's son. And he lived a life that you and I could not live and died the death that we deserved and rose again. But here's what's fascinating. That even under that umbrella, sometimes I want to try to earn God's love. I want to try to position myself in front of God's love to make sure that I present myself well enough. John continues in his letter, 1 John 410 saying this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The reality is this, God's initiating love creates a response when we embrace and say yes to his love. And his love is not about how well our report card looks, how well our life looks, how messed up or not our life is. It is a mere fact of putting our trust into Jesus. And as I put my trust into Jesus, he says in that moment, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. And as I follow Jesus, I'm continually saved from the presence and the power of sin in my life. So what does that tell me? That as I follow Jesus, I start to trust him more and trust myself less. And he starts to transform me from the inside out. How? Through his love. It doesn't matter how your week went. It matters what he's done for you on the cross. And you can continue to return to that. And he will transform you to love him more and more. And love things that are not of him less and less. His love isn't dependent on your love toward him. He initiates and responds. He is always moving towards the world in love. And that will make more sense here in a minute with where we're going to go. Secondly, it's not on the screen again, but I would write this down. Loving others, loving others is the mission. Loving others is the mission. That loving God is a response. Loving others is the mission. The reality is this, that I am motivated to love others. I'm motivated to move towards others. Because God moved towards me. 
And I, I know that sounds very simple to say it's very hard to sit upon because I have to tell myself every day that I wake up that God is moving towards me, he has moved towards me, and he loves me, and his initiating love towards me moves me continually more and more towards other people. That the further you go into God's love for you, the further that you sink your teeth into the reality that he does love you and his love comes both in grace and in truth and he wants to transform you in his love and he wants you to freely receive his love, you can then freely give his love and that takes a lot of time. What do I do in that time? I sit upon the reality of his love. 1 John 4, 11 tells me this. Dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That the motivation to loving someone else is not based on their report card to me or based on how they've treated me or based on what they've done for me. It is based on the reality that the God of the universe who created us all and has given us life moved towards me. And in moving towards me, he invites me on a mission to move towards others so I can say them no so that I can demonstrate to them the love that has been demonstrated to me. That's why I said, are we more into relationships than results? Because if I'm just into results, I'll move away from people quicker than I'll move towards people. When they don't want it, then I'm not sure I want them. And yet the God of the universe, if you read throughout the story of God, at every point he is moving towards his people, whether they dismiss him or they run into him. Our God is a compassionate and gracious God. So the question is this. Are you experiencing the love of God in your life through the work and person of Jesus? To live missionally is not to just grab on to a bandwagon of really good things and really good service projects and do the thing. Rather, it should be primarily an everyday response to the love that God has shown you every day. And the more that I sit into that reality, the more that my eyes open, not only is God moving towards the world in love, but he's invited me every day to move towards the world in love with him. And my presence and posture to that is so determined by what I believe about God and how he has loved me or not. What I find fascinating is Jesus, Jesus who came to demonstrate the love of God in the fullest way through dying for us and rising again, leaves his disciples when he goes back up to be with the Father with a powerful statement that I think gives us some tangibility to what this means for us in a few short words. Acts 1, 6 through 8 is where we're going to be because ultimately the God of the universe invites us to be witnesses of his love to those around him. So, Acts 1, 6-8, this is what's happening. Jesus has rose from the dead. He showed up to the disciples. They've been hanging out for a little bit. He's revealing himself to other people. Paul would say he's revealed himself to about 500 different people. And this is towards the end, right before he's going to go up to be with the Father. And he shares this with them. Disciples are gathering around Jesus and they asked him this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Now, there's a lot of backstory to that, but basically his disciples wanted to know, is Israel going to become powerful enough to defeat Rome? That's what they're interested in. You read that throughout the Gospels. Disciples are interested in the power play that Israel can have against Rome, and Jesus is going to give us to that. And Jesus dismisses that. He just kind of moves past it, and he gives them this charge. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. There will be a time that the kingdom will be ushered in. There will be a time where everything will, wrong will be right, all of that. But you, right, I love this. He doesn't go into this like, I'm a little bit of this or a little bit of that. He just looks at them. And I imagine this scene's really powerful. I imagine it on a mountainside, right? I imagine him looking at them, and he's like, you're missing it. But for you, you need to understand this is who you are now in light of what I've done for you. And he says this. You'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What I love about this passage is it gives us some context. We are witnesses to what? His love for us and how he is moving towards the world in love. But there's another word in there, the word power. What I love about it is this. The word power can be translated or in the Greek can be used as the same word as dynamite, right? Power, dynamite. There is something, an explosive power, a changing power, a, a power that shakes the ground. Things will be different at the end of that power. And what Jesus is saying is this, but for you, you now in me, you who have trusted in me, given your life to me, there is a power coming through the Holy Spirit that is going to give wind to your witnessing, which tells me this, that in and of myself, in and of myself, I do not have access to this power. It is only through Jesus. And when I connect my life to him and the Holy Spirit resides in me, there is a power that reminds me and fuels me underneath the love of God to go and witness no matter where I'm at, who I'm with, what I'm doing to others by the love of God. That the combo of us fully embracing the identity of being a witness and then relying on the power of the Holy Spirit is needed inside of a conversation like this. That is why we have to sit upon the love of God. You know, one of the primary things the Spirit of God does for each and every one of us, it reminds us, he reminds us that we are children of God. Why? Because so often I forget that. And do you know that's one of the greatest illustrations of love? That you and I can do nothing to earn it. We couldn't do anything to climb the ladder of it. And he's given us freely sonship. The Spirit reminds us there is a power to the Spirit not just to go out and be bold and courageous, yes, but to be reminded of the root of who we are so that when we are out, we are witnessing to that in word and in deed. So what does this look like? What does it mean to be missional every day? And how do I lean into that? I have some different things that we're going to talk through and then we'll, we'll end with some challenges on how we play this out. The first thing is this. An everyday disciple has a missional presence Seeking to listen, not just be heard. I'm going to do some tangible points here, okay? And we'll just talk about how this plays out and maybe some application to them, okay? An everyday disciple has missional presence, seeking to listen, not just be heard. 
This idea of presence, I, I would put it this way. Your presence is a present. Okay? Your presence may be the greatest gift you can give anybody. And maybe with all the technology we have, all the information we have, all the things that we have to entertain us, our presence might be some of the greatest gifts to others, not just in physically being present, but mentally and emotionally being present, asking good questions and listening. Here's an example. I remember when I was in ninth grade, going into 10th grade, I started trying out for, well, they take anybody on the football team, but you start practicing on the football team and all that stuff. And I came home from the first practice, and I just wasn't feeling it, and I wasn't excited about it because it was all new. And I remember coming home, and I told my dad, I said, I'm quitting. I'm done. And he took me out to the backyard, and we sat down, and he just asked a couple questions. And we sat there, and what I found fascinating as I was reflecting on the story is, my dad never once said, you have to play. My, my dad never once scolded me for stepping back and, and quitting or thinking about it. He never once tried to twist my arm so that we had some sort of pull in the family, in the football realm, whatever it is, right? He just sat there and he said something to this effect, Joel, do you like football and do you like playing football? And I was like, oh, yeah. I love playing football. I enjoy playing football, right? And after a while of just asking questions and being present, I came to the conclusion, and a trip to uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, and we bought new cleats. That helped too, right? <laughs> but um, I came to the conclusion that I really did want to play. Now, listen, this is really important to note. My dad's presence was a present to me in that moment, and there was nothing that he said to convince me. There was nothing that he did to try to twist my arm. It was rather someone who was outside of myself sitting there with me, being emotionally, physically, and mentally present enough to lead me where he knew I needed to go. When I talk about being missionally present, this can be really, really hard to do because there's so much going on in life. What I'm talking about is not just a physical presence, but that when you're around someone, both internally, you're able to emotionally and mentally be present to the person, not trying to receive something from them, not trying to push something onto them, but just being present to them and allowing them to share with you what's going on in your life and not letting external situations grab at your presence right, like iPhones and iWatches and, and circumstantial things, right, that ultimately there is an internal and an external presence that sits inside of that reality. Because here's the reality. I think we got to get to the root of, do we believe that God is present in the everyday moments? My presence will be motivated by the reality that I believe God is present. When I believe that God is present then I'm looking to be present with God. God will show up in the everyday. He'll show up in a conversation with your kids. He'll show up in a conversation with the barista. He'll show up with a coworker. Am I present enough in and of myself and externally to be able to jump into being present with God and living that out? How does that play out? First, I need to listen to God. And secondly, I need to listen to others. Am I listening to God? Am I listening to others? That's what I mean by actively being present. 
Well, how does that play out? I'd write this down. A tangible way that you can be present to God and listen to him is through prayer and fasting. That's why partially we're doing a prayer and fasting challenge. When you pray, it's not just talking to God, but there are times where you're listening to God. Through his word, you're listening. When you fast, it is a challenge, right? As I'm fasting, as we're fasting, right, and you are hit with the reality that you can't do the thing or have the thing that you wanted to, it reminds you to pray. Maybe it starts by, why, God, why are you doing this to me? But it ends up being, okay, where do you want me to be in this moment to listen to you? Prayer and fasting is a tangible way to have a missional presence with others around you. Because the reality is this, my being with Jesus should influence my doing with Jesus. And they should go hand in hand. They should always flow in and out. They should not be separated from each other. Acts 13 gives us a great picture of that. In Acts 13, we see the early church, they are doing what they normally do. They are praying and fasting and worshiping. And then something powerful happens. Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So I'm going to butcher some of these names. But Barnabas and Simon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they're worshiping and fasting. You can add prayer to that. There's other translations say they were praying. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Here's what's fascinating. That living missionally starts with actively being with Jesus. Because as I'm actively being with Jesus, he will speak to me or guide me into what it means to do for him. The church in Antioch, they were not like, well, we got to do the next projects, and so we better get together and fast and pray and worship. They just did that every day and every week. And as they did that, the Spirit led them. It led them to send Paul or Saul at this point and Barnabas to go plant churches. What if we positioned our life, and it doesn't have to be 55 minutes every morning and 55 minutes every night and doing all this. But what if we were a church that was so committed to listening to the Spirit that we placed our lives in such a way of prayer, fasting, worshiping to do that? To do that, to why? Partner with God. If God is the creator of all and he knows all and he is constantly moving towards the world in love, then I better jump onto that ship and I better be a part of that if I want to have an impact because his love is the transforming love that people need. Now, secondly, my presence, my presence to others, my presence to God includes listening, but my presence to others needs to also be wrapped in listening also. And, and I think this is a fantastic starting point and maybe it's, in some ways, a backward starting point to what we naturally would do, right? Because when I have something exciting to share or I feel the urgency to share with you something that's going on in my life or that's changed my life, then I tend to just want to share it. And sometimes it feels backwards listening to others and then allowing that to form how I share it. And yet, a presence with someone ultimately starts with listening to that person to know what, how to be present to them. 
The reality is this. Everybody is going through something. Everybody is navigating something. And as you jump in with God to whatever relationship ends up, he ends up handing you, you jump in and you start listening for the sake of being able to do for Jesus in that situation, asking good questions and listening. Stephen Covey, the leadership guy, he says this, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. Most people listen with the intent to reply. Right? Here's the reality. What if we, in the missional presence mindset, took a position of taking a step of listening to understand so that we can seek to be understood? We live in a very divisive time. It is cyclical. It has happened years ago. It will happen for years to come. We live in a divisive time where there are so many people that want to briefly listen to formulate a hard reply. What if the church decided to listen to understand? Because as I listen, there actually may be some things that I can relate to or that I can empathize with or that I can reply with a grace and a compassion. I love what Paul says in Colossians 4. He says, always make sure that your reply, that your answer is seasoned with salt, that it has a graciousness to it and a respectfulness to it. There's something about being able to understand, to position me inside of that. So how do I practice missional presence with others? I would invite you to consider what prayer and fasting looks like in seasonal or maybe regular measures. I think prayer and fasting, what it does is it connects me to God and it drives a compassion towards others. And as I'm listening to God, he will help me listen to others. As he invites me into a relationship, he'll help me listen inside that relationship. What if this week we decided to be more present to those around us to see where God was moving in with love in the world that we exist in. Secondly, an everyday disciple has a missional presence, but also has a missional posture, seeking to serve, not be served. This, this is how I would put it, right? Um, I said your presence is a present. I would say this, your posture is the presentation. Your posture is the presentation not just the words and content that you might share with someone or that you might share about Jesus. Your posture is the presentation, right? I think about this all the time. We talk about posture. If you're a kid in the room, a middle school, high school student in the room, I don't know if your mom would do this to you, but my mom would always be like, sit up. I'm like, okay. And you would sit up straight. And I'd always be like, why, mom? Why? I can't just like slump or I can't just lean back. on Leaning back on the chair was a big one, right? You're on two legs. She's like four legs on the floor, right? It was all posture stuff. Why did she want me to practice that? Well, probably a part of it was she like didn't want me to go off into the world and do that in like big meetings and stuff. But she probably also was formulating some really good habits so that I would respectfully and be able to engage with someone while eating or sitting or talking. There was probably some just really good like human level interaction stuff she was doing by saying, formulate your posture better, sit up, straight back, because ultimately in that you'll be able to engage someone very differently. I think there's a posture that a missional, everyday missional person has. And the question I would ask is this, how is my spiritual posture? How is my spiritual posture? 
how am I spiritually towards others? Because I think, I think sometimes when my spiritual posture is off, which can happen to any of us because we're human, okay? So there's, there's grace in this. But sometimes as a human, I struggle with this because my posture might be off or I'm feeling off or I don't feel great or I, I don't necessarily enjoy talking to the person that's right in front of me or we don't get along, we have a different personality and sometimes my posture, I start to slump a little bit. When I start to slump or I kick back the chair a little bit, right, what happens is I start to make it about myself more than about them. And so the conversation starts in my mind, starts to become, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm better, you're not. It's about me and not you. And when I'm missionally not aware of my posture, spiritually, then I can off-put others just purely by the presentation of it, not even by the content of it. They must not want to listen to me. They must not care about me. They must not want to know what I'm thinking. They must just want to get through the presentation of it. John Maxwell says this, another leadership guy, people may hear your words, but they will feel your attitude, right? Your spiritual posture, people will feel, right? He says attitude, whatever's kind of rubbing off, right? They'll hear your words, but if your attitude's not aligned in that, they won't feel your words, this is what Jesus says in Mark 10, 42 to 45. I think it's powerful. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and I can empathize with his disciples because often I want to be the greatest. They start arguing about who's the greatest inside of their little circle of 12. And it's James and John, and then the rest of them start hearing. They're like, what is James and John doing? Why are they asking Jesus about the greatest, right? And Jesus is like, oh, we got to do some conversations here. I just imagine it would be frustrating sometimes to be Jesus. It's like everything was going well, and then you start arguing. And we got to stop on the side of the road like a bunch of children. we got to knock it off. It just did that all the time. And this is what he said to them. He called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles lord over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Right? I love that. He, he goes after identity. It, not, just, not just behavior. Right? That comes along with it. He's like, not with you. You are... You are my people, you're set apart. You're following me. Your identity is different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is he saying there? The God of the universe came into our earth and decided not to set up a throne, but he set up a serving station where everywhere he went, he served. I imagine his disciples were like, well, we feel crummy now, right? And yet the spiritual posture that Jesus is presenting to them is one of serving, not being served. And missionally, that is something that as the church, we need to tie ourselves to. Am I more in it for the person or more in it for myself? Because Jesus was more in it for us than he was for himself. Whether I'm sharing Jesus, doing good, loving others, it cannot be for my sake, but for their sake. Am I willing to posture myself in a way that they see Jesus more than they see me? Well, how do we do this? What are some tangible ways? Inside of Rich Velotis' book, he would argue there's two ways. One is hospitality and one is justice. I think those are fascinating ways. Not the only ways. I'm just giving you some practical ways. Hospitality. One of the greatest evangelistic and missional tools that you can tap into you may not be able to 
say, I, I don't speak from the front, or I'm not great with words, or I'm not great with this, or I don't have a lot of time for this and that, that's okay. Those are small percentages of things. Everyone can invite someone to their house, out to dinner, to go to the park with their kids, right? All of us can invite someone in just like Jesus invited us in. Jesus oftentimes invited in the least of these. He's like, Matthew, follow me, and let's get together, everyone you know, which are text collectors and sinners, and let's have a party. He invited in, right? Was it so you could have a party? No, it was to display the hospitality of the gospel, that you and I can live in such a missional way. Our posture of serving is inviting you in, no matter what the report card says, no matter what you've done for me, to me, it is inviting you in so that you can feel Jesus in the midst of that. And then we pray that through that, it would open up a conversation, of course. It would open up conversations to come. But it starts with inviting in in the posture there. Secondly is justice. And he would say this, Justice is not correcting, or not all, is, justice is not just correcting bad things or illegal things. Yes, that's a part of it. But it's doing the right things for those who don't often receive it. It is doing right for those who cannot get it. It is not just correcting what's going on over here, but it's also correcting what's going on over here. For those who are struggling, for those who don't have enough, for those who are suffering. Justice is stepping into the gap, is a posture of serving those around me. Listen, the question then would become, what is my missional or spiritual posture? And I would ask it in this way, am I inviting people around my table? And am I going out and kneeling before people to serve them? inviting people to sit around my table, and am I kneeling to serve others? That kind of spiritual posture is the one that Jesus lived with his entire life here. Jesus was never throned on a, on a big place and a big castle and all this stuff. He went to the cross, Philippians 2 tells us, and he humbled himself all the way to that. You and I can make leaps and bounds inside of a missional presence when we decide to serve and not be served. Lastly is this. An everyday disciple has a missional proclamation seeking compassion, not coercion. Now listen, there is words that need to be shared. There is words that need to be stated. There is a gospel message that we cannot be ashamed of, Paul writes in Romans 1. And we need to use words to display that, yes. And inside of that proclamation, though, this is what I would say. Our proclamation should be an invitation. It should be one of inviting in. It should be one to invite someone to be a part of what is going on, not push someone away. The message will do that in and of itself. But the way we posture ourselves, the way we're present, the way that we decide to have conversations will ultimately make Jesus make sense whether they want Jesus or not. It's not a way of trying to twist arms and saying everybody's going to say yes. When it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel, two ways that I interact with it usually, either I freeze or the word that I would use is fight, right? 
I can either freeze or I can use it to fight. Freezing usually is where I go. It becomes a scary or audacious thing. It becomes something that I uh, get kind of the sweats and I start getting kind of scaly and I start kind of foaming at the mouth a little bit and I'm like, what do I do with this? I'm about what they need Jesus. How do I do this, right? You're sitting at a cafe maybe and you're like, when are we going to do this thing? And I freeze, right? Pers- uh, just, I just freeze. The other way is fight. And the reality with that is I don't actually mean fight with that. But I think sometimes we can see evangelism as a way to save someone. And so I use it to make sure that I present it as often and as much as I can so that I can save others. And I feel the tension with that also. And the reality is this, I think that there is more to be said about having a compassionate way of leaning into someone's context to share the content of the gospel. I'm not saying that everybody's going to say yes if you do it the right way and you have all this and that in place. What I am saying is there's probably more to be thought about than just sharing the gospel because there's a context that someone's living out and there's content that meets their needs. But unless I listen to them and ask questions, I may not know what they're wrestling. I think oftentimes, I may not know what they're asking, may not know what's going on. I think oftentimes, we like to think that everybody is thinking the same things that we're thinking. I do this all the time. I'm like, they, they have to be thinking the same stuff I'm thinking, so they'll be on the same wavelength. I think when I walk into conversations, I have to be aware enough to engage where they are at, what context and conversation they're having to be able to present it. I thought of this silly illustration, right? I thought of it like this. Uh, If you just imagine one of your neighbor's houses was burning down, right? And you were to go up to them with the house burning down in front of them, and you were to start sharing with them uh, why they didn't do the right thing, or no, I, I, you should have done this, or how you got to do this now and figure this out, and not just asking them, how can I help you? And I think sometimes when we walk into presenting the gospel, someone's life might be just burning down. And before I assume how that is playing out, asking the question, what is going on and how can I help you? will allow you to contextualize the content of the gospel message that God loves us, we're sinners in need of a savior, Jesus is that savior who rescued us, and he invites us to say yes to him. Because someone might need to hear that Jesus is the healer of all. Someone might need to hear that Jesus is the refuge for those who don't have a place to go. Some might need to hear that Jesus is just. Some might need to hear Jesus is merciful. And all of those things are true and accurate. And at the fullest measure, all of those things are presented as the gospel, but they're all the gospel in of themselves. And someone's life might be burning just like that house. And until you understand what is going on in their life, we may not understand how to present the gospel. So the question I'm going to ask is this. Do I know my context to sharing the gospel? Sitting in someone's pain, listening, and trying to ultimately walk them into hope through Jesus. This is how I would say it. Listening leads me to understanding. Listen, leads me to applying wisdom. I would say wisdom, the ultimate wisdom, is the good news of Jesus. Listening allows me to understand and allows me to apply wisdom. Hey, you want to hear what 
what I struggled with and, and how I saw Jesus help me out of that, well, now we have a connecting point because I know what you're struggling with. And Jesus has done this for me. Do I know my context? And then do I know my contents? And then I'll end here. Romans 1, 16 and 17. So what Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as written, the righteous will live by faith. But the reality is this, the same power that is infused in us through the Holy Spirit is the same power that the gospel carries. That ultimately, in knowing my context and knowing the content of the gospel is extremely important because the content in and of itself is powerful enough to change lives. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, I'm not ashamed enough or, or I'm not ashamed to go share it as like I'm bold. He's saying, I'm not ashamed that it didn't take me, but it took God to save me. That I'm not ashamed that I'm a sinner in need of the power of God. The content speaks for itself. Am I allowing that to match up with the context that I might be sitting in at work, school, family, friends, wherever it may be? As the worship team comes up, I just want to leave us with two challenges here, okay? Then we'll finish. The first challenge, I would title it this, okay? Who is watching you? Right? Like, I don't know. Who is watching me? But who is watching you? If you want to know where to be missional, just look around at who's watching you. Your kids, your family, your friend group, your coworkers, your neighbors, wherever you go to hang out at a restaurant, wherever you go to do whatever, have a drink, whatever it is, who's watching you? What spaces are you in where people are going to engage with you just because you're in relationship with them. I would challenge you to spend 15 minutes figuring out who is watching you because I guarantee this, who is watching you most likely will be the greatest opportunity for you to be Jesus to them because that is the space that you are in and that is the space most likely that God is going to meet you with his presence and intersect with this world in his love. So start to look at where God is working and start to move in that direction in love, maybe, is the conversation. The second thing is a stretch challenge. And we're just going to keep hitting this and beating this as much as we can, this drum. The question is, who do you need to invite? Who do you need to invite? Now listen, I would preface it with this. I believe there are people who are on their own spiritual journey and there's phases or steps to that. I believe that there are people ready to be invited in inside of your circles. Who are people that are curious, that are asking you questions, that are around you a lot, that are, are in need of community, that are interested in what you do on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or at small group. They're like starting the process that you can extend an invite to the party or Sunday morning or a life group invite to there are people in your life right now that if you just invited them, they may step into that. Who is it? The stretch challenge is think about that. Who's watching you, but who maybe in that circle is ready for an invitation and maybe the palms get sweaty and maybe you're worried about the response. Listen, 
God will do the work. The Spirit does the work. He invites us to just be witnesses to the work He's done in our life. And He invites you to live out of that. This is a challenging conversation to me because I want to do one of two things. I either want to hide or I want to do things that are big and audacious and everybody can see. That what if we started to see the people right in front of us, the people right in front of us that need Jesus the most and have the best opportunity because they're in proximity to you. And God will move towards them in love. Are you going to meet him there and invite them into that journey? Father, we give you this time. We give you this moment. We give you this space. Thank you for your grace and your love. Father, we just pray that you this week would open our hearts and our minds, open people up that are close to us, Father. Would you open conversations? Would your presence hit our spaces in ways that we could not fathom or understand? I pray for my three. I pray for my neighbors. I pray for those that are in my family that need Jesus, Father. Would you open up spaces of conversation that they would see the love of Jesus in rich and beautiful ways and that we would be ready to respectfully and graciously listen and ask questions and share with them where we are at in our journey. Father, we pray that you would open people's hearts to coming to the party Sunday mornings, life groups, and that you would do that work. We thank you that we get to do this together, but let us not stop inside of this building. Take us this week, Father. We just pray this in your name.